the whole difference between construction and creation is exactly this, that a thing constructed can only be loved after it is constructed, but a thing created is loved before it exists, as the mother can love the unborn child. Welcome to Tales with the Sales, where we discuss stories that matter because you are living one. I'm your host, Jane DeSales. I'm a writer, poet, and storyteller. It is my pleasure to introduce you to authors as we explore how fiction impacts our lives and culture. My guest today is Patricia Meredith. Before diving into the realm of writing historical and cozy mysteries, Patricia was a fiction editor of novels, magazines, art books, and more. She currently lives just outside Spokane, Washington, on a farm with peacocks, ducks, guinea fowl, chickens, and sheep. When she's not writing, you could find her playing board games with her husband, creating imaginary worlds with her two children, or out in the garden reading a good book with a cup of tea. We're so excited to have Patricia Meredith with us today. And Patricia, would you like to share some literature with us? Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Um, So I'm Patricia Meredith. I'm the author of the Spokane Clock Tower Mysteries, uh, which are set here in Spokane. So it's really fun to speak with another uh, local Spokanite. Um, But one of the pieces of literature that really inspired me and my writing was um, Connie Willis's To Say Nothing of the Dog, um, which is actually a time travel science fiction, historical fiction um, conglomeration. She just, she has some really funny things to say. Uh, And one of my favorite quotes uh, is this one. It is a temporal universal that people never appreciate their own time, especially transportation. 20th century contempts complained about canceled flights and gasoline prices. 18th century contempts complained about muddy roads and highwaymen. No doubt, Professor Pettick's Greeks complained about recalcitrant horses and chariot wheels falling off. And uh, of course, being a time travel book, uh, it really delves into why history is important. Um, And that's one of the things I love about it, because I write historical historical mystery, technically. And uh, so I wanted to also jump back to uh, explain Professor Pettick. He's one of the professors at Oxford, and he's in the midst of an argument with one of his fellow professors um, about whether history is important uh, or whether it's down to just a science now. Uh, it's all about dates. And uh, so his, uh, the other professor is saying that uh, history is no longer a chronicle of mere events. It is a science. And Professor Pettick argues, mere events? Do you consider the Greeks' defeat of the Persian fleet? A mere event? It shaped the course of history for hundreds of years. Events are irrelevant to the theory of history. What? Do you consider the Battle of Agincourt irrelevant for the Crimean War or the execution of Mary Queen of Scots? Details, he said. Did details matter to Darwin or Newton? As a matter of fact, they had. As Lady Shrapnel is so fond of saying, God is in the details, which is a quote I often repeat to myself. Uh, But Professor Pettit goes on. What about love? What of Antony and Cleopatra's love? Was that irrelevant to history? What of Richard III's villainy? What of Joan of Arc's fervor? It is character, not populations, that affect history. And then he says, the action of the individual, that's the force driving history, not overforces blind, impersonal forces. The history of the world is but the biography of great men, Carlyle writes, and so it is. Copernicus's genius, Cincinnatus's ambition, St. Francis of Assisi's faith. It is character that shapes history. That has greatly inspired me. I love it. I love it. So where were you in your life when you first encountered this? Um, I was in college. So I got a creative writing degree from Whitworth here in Spokane. That's what brought me to Spokane. I'm actually an army brat. So from all over and then from Colorado most recently and then ended up here at Whitworth. Uh, One of my professors, uh, Vic Bob, uh, who is greatly influential in my reading and writing, he pointed me towards P.G. Woodhouse, who is hilarious and wonderful and witty. And he said, and then you need to read Connie Willis because she is a modern day P.G. Woodhouse. Um, a lot of what she writes is just spot on. 
she weaves in faith a lot into her writing. She'll make some very interesting comments. The best Christmas story ever is the nativity and why Mm -hmm. it is the best Christmas story ever, that it has everything. It has battle and it has, um, you know, uh, loss and it has uh, grief and uh, excitement and adventure and travel and um, all these uh, overcoming of obstacles just to even just to even get Jesus here at the right time, at the right place, to the right people. Um, and I love that. I love seeing, looking back through history and seeing how God is just, uh, we were just watching Prince of Egypt last night, actually. And I love the song about the, we are a thread in a tapestry and it's all woven together. And it's so beautiful to look back and see how God has interwoven all of those events in history, like what she was writing about in To Say Nothing of the Dog. So um, so anyway, so that's the long story of how I came to uh, know the book. And then I discovered all of her other books. And she's just, she's a wonderful author um, with uh, lots to say about history. And it has greatly influenced uh, my choice to go towards historical mystery versus just cozy mystery. So, yeah. mm. I find it interesting when you were talking about how she sees, you know, it is these lives that, uh, you know, I'm a homeschooling mom and I believe you're a homeschooling mom as mm-hmm. well. Yes. And we, before we hit record, we were talking about the importance of history. Yes. And, <laughs> and I love the fact that I get the freedom to share narrative tales about history, you know, not these stamps of dates Exactly. on a timeline. And not that those dates aren't important, but like you said, the people, their lives, mm-hmm. that's what's important. And sharing those lives and of the great people, but even of some of the little people, you know, exactly. that, and I think that that's one place where historical fiction can get really exciting. Exactly. That's why I love it. It doesn't just follow the lives of the great people. It follows the lives of the little people, even these fictional little people. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Which is why, like, in my book, I decided to make up my main characters, but I set them amongst real people in history and real events and real locations. It's so important to remind ourselves that there were, that these people were real people, that they were experiencing real things. So, like, in my book, um, they're about to cut the police force in October, and that really did happen. And that's, you know, very pertinent to today and a lot of the things they were dealing with with the police force at that time. You know, so so we've all, especially in the last couple of years, <laughs> almost all of us have been touched in some way by either the loss of a job or switching of jobs. And so it's a very pertinent event. And by placing a fictional character uh, amongst a historical event, it reminds us that, you know, th- there's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new mm. under the sun. <laughs> um, in fact, there's another quote. Uh, let's see. August Wilhelm von Schlegel said, historians are prophets looking backward. I love that. Mm. Well, and it's a catch-22 in some ways because we do look backward, and that's important. And I love history. That was actually one of my foci when I got my degree was history. <laughs> history political. I did not study that. History, political science, and sociology. Okay, yes. And the the thing about it is, is you have that little question mark, though, because you need to get such a variety of sources for your history Mm -hmm. because you recognize that everybody's experience of history is through a different lens. Exactly. I I do like that through, through your story, you're covering people that would seem insignificant Mm -hmm. to the historical milieu. And yet they had huge impacts on what happened in their communities. Right. Right. I mean, it is people. Yeah. I wanted to share with our listeners, this is something that I thought was really neat. And Patricia is my first author that's local, not just in the same time zone as me, but in my city, the city of Spokane. But how I found out about you is I was at the bookstore in my neighborhood, the used bookstore in my neighborhood that I can walk to, that I walk to with my kids. And they told me about you. They're like, oh, do you do you know Patricia Meredith? Yeah, she was in here. She was doing research. She was flipping through all of our historical books and seeing what her characters would have been reading. And yeah, I thought, yeah. oh, this is someone who's fascinating. <laughs> and you know, neither you nor I would probably be super high up on the you know people of history to check out, right? And yet, our work can have an impact on our communities 
on relationships and all this. And I just think it's so fun. I just think it's so fun. I also noticed that you try to get people to support their local businesses as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think that's really important. I think literature is a great basis for community. Um, and I think right now, especially people are really looking for community and, you know, that can happen online as well as in person. One of the other books that I, I uh, that has really, well, that really pushed me two years ago um, is uh, Jennifer Fulweiler. I don't know if you've heard of her. Um, oh, I know Jennifer Fulweiler. Well. <laughs> yes. well, not personally, like I haven't had her on the show. <laughs> oh, you should invite her. Um, she's amazing. Well, she needs to write some fiction then. I, I know she does. I know. But her um, her one beautiful dream is what why I'm homeschooling and why I decided to write. My uh, youngest was three. Uh, so I have a five, uh, no, six-year-old now, <laughs> six and eight-year-old. I've always wanted to write books. In fact, the first draft of the book that I just published was written when I was pregnant with my firstborn. And before that, I was an editor. So I was editing other people's books. And I kept thinking, I could do this. You know, I've always wanted to do this. I wanted to do children's literature. God geared me towards mystery. That's where I ended up. Um, and I love it. I absolutely love it. But one of the books that helped me to realize that as a mom, it was okay for me to find my blue flame. That's her new one is your blue flame. And one of the things she says in there is about um, seeking impact, not adoration. And that's absolutely mm-hmm. my prayer is that, you know, I am not out there to become the next Brandon Sanderson or Agatha Christie or that is not my goal. My goal is to um, point people towards, uh, towards the truth and towards the good and the beautiful, like you said, and that there is something uh, beautiful about this life and about people, that people are important. And in, the, in a world where more things are happening online and there's a lot of anonymity there, I think we're mm. losing that touch of uh, speaking with people and the impact that they can have on our lives and the impact we, we, that we do have on their lives um, and taking that for granted. Mm. Yeah. Well, what you're saying makes me think of part of Charlotte Mason's philosophy on education, where she talks about education is about relationships, mm-hmm. relationships between ideas, relationships behind events or within events or between events, which kind of gets back to the book that you read for us is what it kind of reminded me of is that idea of these experiences and how they interacted with other experiences. But I think she would also say that it's also the relationship with between people that ultimately that's where our human experience lies. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that yes, the ideas matter and stuff, but the ideas in my philosophy matter in the way that they impact the human experience, because that's where we're at. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, and the Bible is full of the, well, lucky how you started with, you know, that it's the little people. God loves using little people and he loves putting them in situations where uh, they couldn't possibly achieve what they need to achieve without him, you know? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, repeatedly, you know, the, the, the most obvious one is, is people getting pregnant, you know, women getting pregnant when they shouldn't be able to anymore. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and him saying, you know, I'm going to take you even past that. And, you know, Abraham making bad choices and <laughs> all of the, you know, uh, saying, you know, well, I can't wait for God. Nope, that's not possible. I'm going to do it my own way. And every single time God comes back and says, nope, my way is better. And, uh, and just proves his awesome power. He sees it all. Well, and he can even work with our mess ups as well. Cause like you, you mentioned Abraham again, and I'm yeah. thinking about when he tried to pass his wife off as his sister. Yes. Like, what? <laughs> yes. You're like one of the patriarchs and you did what? Right. You know? And, and so yeah. I guess I, I look at how, um, how impatient and rash Peter is. Yes. Yes. And yet look at the way that, look at the way that Jesus used Peter. And so I'm like, okay. I love St. Peter. I can identify with Peter. Yes. Right. Let me go throw up some tents. Right. Like, just sit down and pay attention to what's going on. Um, exactly. I think that's such a good lesson for our kids, too, as a homeschooling mom. Like, that's what I try to come back to when we're reading the Bible, when we're reading history, is that, you know, God can still u- use you. You can make a mistake. You can, you can make bad choices. But he will still, his good will overcome all. And in the end... He has it all. So you just have to keep coming back to him 
fall on your knees and realize that, you know, he, he knows what he's doing. And in your mention of Peter, uh, so one of the best Christian historical fiction things happening right now is The Chosen. Have you watched The oh, Chosen? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, that just, oh my goodness, it just hits me right here in my little historical fiction heart. As soon as I, because it's one of those shows I put off and I put off and I was like, oh, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know if I want to watch that. Um, and, you know, people kept talking about it and, uh, and we watched it and we just, I, I sobbed through every episode. <laughs> because it just hits me so hard. And then uh, we actually just started watching it with my kids. And then we'll go look up the Bible passage that it references, you know, during it. So like we just watched the episode where um, Jesus provides all the fish for Peter and mm-hmm. Andrew and, and calls Peter and Andrew and, and James and John. What I love about The Chosen is, is the, the chills you get when they'll, they'll say things straight out of the Bible amongst this historical fiction retelling. So then you go look it up and you're like, oh, because, because it's in a historical fiction retelling, there are lines that you're like, wait a minute, I know that's in the Bible, but, or, or other lines where you're like, wait, did that really happen? Is that really what he said? And you go look it up and you're like, oh my goodness, that is what he said, but it never struck me the same way until you put it into a story format, uh, the way the chosen does the calling of some of the the disciples. Oh, who's the one, um, the apostle, when he calls Bartholomew and he's the architect and he, and uh, there's the whole, I saw you under the fig tree. That hit me so hard because it was just like that, that is my story. But I also identify a lot with Peter, his whole struggle of he's trying, he can do it all himself. I am a, you know, a a one on the Enneagram. I am a uh, perfectionist and, one of the biggest things God is always working with me on is, is me letting go and realizing that he's got this. Um, and, uh, and that's why I love looking back through history and um, reminding myself of that, especially over the last two years. So. Mm-hmm. I know the thing that really struck me about The Chosen was the humor. I was mm-hmm. kind of surprised by that at first. Yeah. And it was so refreshing and that it wasn't anything crass at all. No. But it was clearly... If Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man, part of the human experience is humor. Absolutely. And that he would have had, and he is the perfection of the human state as well. And so his sense of humor would have been fantastic. Exactly. Yeah. And they don't turn him into a clown, but they show like the relationships mm-hmm. and that there's going to be humor and that we humans are silly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that he was just there. And that's that's one thing that I love about how the writers do it and how Jonathan Rumi does his performance yes. is it reminds us that of those human aspects. And I mean, like, you know, you read the Gospels and you pray and things like that. But something about, like you said, in the fictional format gives a more well-rounded experience of the Gospels. And I know it sounds terrible because you want to say, well, reading it is enough. And reading it is enough. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is. But we get so caught up in our own experiences and we cut, we, we cut off history, whether it's biblical history or regular history, and we say, that happened there. That isn't relevant to my life. And we lose the connection. We lose the relationship. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I recognize just now is by incorporating humor, I think it's another invitation to humility. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Of not taking ourselves totally serious and being this clenched up, tight, unsurrendered yeah. person. And that humor lets us let go of some of that control and that grasping. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yay, the chosen. Yes. <laughs> this is kind of why I started this show in general is this whole big question of why does fiction matter? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, in fact, you mentioned adorning the dark and there was a, there was a quote in there that made me think of your podcast. And I just thought, Oh my goodness, it's so pertinent. He's talking about uh, fantasy, about writing fantasy and why fantasy is important. And he says, um, Tolkien and Lewis held the fabric of Narnia or Middle Earth in one hand and clutched ours in the other, building a bridge so we could set out for perilous realms and return safely with some of the beauty we found there. Sorry, it gets me choked up. Um, 
the stories that awaken us are meant to awaken us not only to the reality to come, but to this world and its expectant glory. And I just, I love that idea of um, fiction reminds us that we're not alone, that God, God is creative. So it's okay to be creative. He made us that way. There is a beauty in that. Like you said, just um, the connection. And uh, sometimes you can see that easier when we take that step back. I think that's what it is. It's almost the uncanny valley thing from like science fiction. Uh, So the uncanny valley, uh, if you're not familiar with science fiction, is um, the idea that like specifically they'll talk about it with androids. So if they're making robots that look too human, there is a point where it's the uncanny valley. They're so close to human that it makes you feel uncomfortable. In fact, there's some uh, cartoons lately that have made me feel like that. Uh, We were watching Raya um, and the uh, animation was so real. There was times when it bothered me how realistic their facial expressions were. It, It pulled me out. And that's something they'll talk about in science fiction. So, so the idea that we'll never make robots that look exactly like us. So iRobot, things like that. That'll never actually happen because it'll make us feel too uncomfortable, mostly because we'll see ourselves in it. Mm. And I think that, that it, it makes me think of how God created us, that we, yeah, I guess, where was I going with that? That, um, that he, he instilled us with creativity and just like him and, uh, when we, when we, the closer we get to, to God, the more we um, identify with him <laughs> and, and are like, wow, you, and yet also it helps us realize how far we are from him, how, mm-hmm. how, uh, how distinct we are from him, you know, that he is so beyond our comprehension. So you step a little bit closer and then fall on your knees <laughs> and then step a little closer and fall on your knees because you're just overwhelmed by who he is compared to us that we are, you know, we are the characters in the book that he has written. Authors will talk a lot about, uh, you know, the the character spoke to me and said, you know, that it wanted to have its own story or it didn't want to do what I wanted it to do. And I always think of, of God looking at us that way and going, oh, come on, just come on, <laughs> just do what I told you to do and it'll turn out okay. I love that image because with so many authors that I've interviewed, they talk about, well, it's not like I had control over my characters. They talk, you know, philosophically and theologically that one of the necessary things for love to exist is free will. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That you can never force someone to love something or someone else, that it has to be of their own volition or it's not love, it's something else. The relationship of that with God and, you know, why he had to allow us to have free will makes sense. But then even in this sub-creation that Andrew Peterson actually talks a lot about in Adorning the Dark, mm-hmm. that you as the author are the sub-creator and that it, in the light of that, it makes sense why these characters can bother us so much mm-hmm. and be like, no, I'm going to go off and do this. Mm-hmm. And it also makes sense why we get so mad when they die. <laughs> Why, why we don't, why as readers, we don't want them to kill the darlings is because the free will, the free agency of that character within this art form of literature, Mm -hmm. they actually demand a little bit of love, a little bit of respect. And so when we lose them, it can, it can be really hard because they exist. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) What can I say? I'm a book nerd. Oh, me too. (laughs) Literature is so much fun though, because of this, because of the the uh, interaction that you can have with somebody because you are going to read something that I'm going to read and take something completely different from it because Mm -hmm. your experiences are going to define how you read that in a way that it will never define how I read it. And I think that's so magical. It's so mystical. If you really start thinking about it, about the power of writing and story and how unique we really are. And with art in general, but the difference between a lot of art and literature is, and this is not to denigrate visual arts at all, Mm. at all, but how much time does the average person spend with a painting unless it's in their own home? Mm -hmm. If you spend an hour or two in the Louvre with one particular piece, that would be an extraordinary experience of one or two hours. Mm -hmm. How many hours does it take you to read a book? Yeah. That that you're engaging 
with this for an extended period of time and transporting to this place and that the place is not static. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The place moves along in time and space. And so it's a different type of experience. And I think that probably the longevity of the experience probably fires different parts of our brain. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know which parts those are. I think mine probably work, but you know, <laughs> that's to be determined. Well, and and what you're saying there too, like with um, that you can actually, I can even read the same book multiple times and each time come to it with a different experience, right? Oh, heavens, yes. You know, and, and so it'll mean something different to me. And, and I think that's part of the power of the Bible is that every time you read it, it means something different to you right? Because of your experiences. And so those stories, you will identify with something different or a line will jump out to you differently. A verse will, will mean something to you because you're like, oh, now I've had this experience. Wow. That just, that just cracks open that idea so much more. Um, how beautiful that is. Well, and the thing about that that blows my mind is when you realize that from all eternity, God had that in mind, your particular experience with his word in mind and he knew you would pick it up and he and and so he didn't just inspire you to pick it up at that point but he inspired the human writers or storytellers to use those precise words where they did to touch you 2000 4000 6000 years later right yeah where you're at that it is the most alive story ever right exactly and it is history, and it is poetry, and it's a love story. Mm -hmm. It's there's a reason why it's the best selling book of all time. <laughs> well, and it just occurred to me, you know, that we always talk about parables that Jesus taught in parables because mm -hmm. we are tied to story. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's not even just the parables; it's all of Scripture. Mm -hmm. You know, is a story, and it's not fiction. I mean. It's not a science textbook either, but that it is story, that he's still teaching us through story. Yeah. But he incorporates it. it he's kind of, God's kind of like a homeschooling mom. Yeah. He's got, because he puts the timeline, he puts the timeline on the wall for mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. and he puts the map and he tells you how long it took to walk from this place to this place sometimes. And he tells you who's whose dad and mom. And who who was in charge at that time? Who was the ruler of the Roman Empire? Da, da, da. I love he, that idea. <laughs> it was the homeschooling mom. That is so spot on. <laughs> I, and I never realized that, but it's exactly that he just takes us alongside and he want and he says, I want to show you my love. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And really, as homeschooling moms, isn't that what we're doing too? In fact, okay, sorry. It reminds me of another quote. Um, uh, G.K. Chesterton. Let me find. I collect quotes. I love quotes. Uh, okay, so uh, the whole difference between construction and creation is exactly this: that a thing constructed can only be loved after it is constructed, but a thing created is loved before it exists, as the mother can love the unborn child. I love that. I, you know, because I love the stories in my head. <laughs> that nobody else has seen yet. I think you're familiar with G.K. Chesterton, right? I think you've mentioned him yes, before. Yes, I, I yeah. love me some Chesterton. So Father Brown is one of my favorite uh, detectives of, of all time. Uh, Father Brown. And then um, uh, Dorothy L. Sayers is another one. I love her, Lord Peter Whimsey and all of those. But both of them also write really good nonfiction about their faith. And about, mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, G.K. Chesterton has some great ones about orthodoxy and all sorts of things. And um, those things don't necessarily stay with me as long as a Father Brown story or a Lord Peter Whimsey story. You know, those stay with me more. I've read a lot of Chesterton's fiction. And then I've read, I'm pretty sure I've read orthodoxy. If not, I've started it like five times, but I'm pretty sure I've read right. through the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. And I really liked What's Wrong with the World. That that made me think about some very interesting ideas, I have to admit. And they would be considered so inappropriate in today's culture, which makes it more interesting. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but it was especially with what's wrong with the world when he talks about like the experience of femininity or masculinity and things like that. 
it was really interesting ideas for me to read because my minor in college was actually in women's studies. And so to be very immersed in radical feminism Mm -hmm. and seeing what that whole worldview was about, and then to read someone who has the utmost respect for women, but has a very different worldview of what femininity brings to the table and things like that was really, it, it was a really great exercise in contrasts, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. And so I really enjoyed that. But, but same as you, my favorite quote from Chesterton is a, a paragraph at the end of one of his short stories of Father Brown. Mm-hmm. He's another one who Vic Bob actually uh, recommended to me. All right. I think I found it. All right. I'm excited about this because I rarely get to read on the show. And so here we go. This is from G.K. Chesterton's The Scandal of Father Brown, which is one of his short stories. And this is after he solved a murder mystery, because for those of you who are unfamiliar with Father Brown, he uh, is this little English priest who goes around and um, solves mysteries and there's dashing French bad guys and all sorts of cool stuff. You, yeah. Everyone should read Father Brown. It's Absolutely. lots of fun. Absolutely. So this is after he's just been immersed in the sadness and darkness of the fact that a murder has occurred. And this is the end of you know this question of why. He raised his eyes and saw through the veil of incense smoke and of twinkling lights that benediction was drawing to its end while the procession waited. The sense of accumulated riches of time and tradition pressed past him like a crowd moving rank and rank through the unending centuries. And high above them all, like a garland of unfading flames, like the sun of our mortal midnight, the great monstrance blazed against the darkness of the vaulted shadows, as it blazed against the black enigma of the universe. For some are convinced that this enigma also is an insoluble problem, and others have equal certitude that it has but one solution. Exactly. And and there's some really funny stuff in Chesterton's fiction that, you know, he covers the dark, the comic, all of it. But this, he's looked head on into the problem of evil, and he sees all these people who've lost their hope and things like that. And yet he knows the way out. He knows the emergency exit with certitude. Yeah. So that's that's my that's my Chesterton. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh yeah. And he'll often have things like that sprinkled throughout where you're just like, wow, that that's profound. <laughs> that, that needs to be on my wall. <laughs> because in the end, I mean, like uh, like the whole podcast is about searching for the true and the beautiful um, in literature. Those are the those are the things that stick with you, especially in light of the P word, the pandemic. Mm-hmm. I've come to realize that art is an essential service. Mm. That mm. our human existence does not make sense mm-hmm. in the absence of art. Mm-hmm. That you know our earliest brothers and sisters in whatever indigenous culture had art, had beauty, had storytelling. Mm-hmm. That these. You know, they might not have, and I I find it so funny that I'll be reading, you know, some history for the novel that I've been working on that who knows when it'll ever be done, but it's a historical fiction. And I'm reading research on this and stuff. And the way that so many authors are dismissive Mm. of another culture because it didn't have a written language, they'll say, and that they'll use that as the definition of whether it was a civilization or not. And I'm like, how can you even use that as the definition? Did they have art? Like to me, did they have culture? Right. Mm -hmm. Did they have trade with other societies? Did they have art and storytelling? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I mean, storytelling's from the dawn of time, you know? Yes. (laughs) You you know that the, you know, from the very beginning, Adam and Eve are going to be telling their kids the story of what happened in the garden. You know, mm. I wonder how they told that story. Was it, you know, man, I messed up. <laughs> or did they focus on the beauty that came before that? Or did they, you know, I wonder. And did they ask the question of hope of where do we go from here? Exactly. Because in the end, I mean, because in the end, that's what is getting us through all of this, right? That Christians, thankfully, can cling to the hope of 
Jesus and, um, and that God's got this, <laughs> you know, I cannot imagine going through the past two years, not being a Christian. I can't go there mentally. I just can't. No. Um, I think you said you're reading um, Corey Ten Boom. The, uh, well, it's, the I have it. Place. It's in my box. Yeah. It's in my box of to be read. Um, uh-huh. I know my listeners can't see this, but hold on. This is my box. Holy cow. <laughs> All right. She's got an enormous yeah. box, guys. <laughs> right. And it's heavy. And that, that doesn't even include the ones that are on my Kindle. Right. Yeah. And that also doesn't even include the books that I'm reading for future guests. Right. Yeah. Well, when you read The Hiding Place, it's going to hit you really hard given recent events. I mean, speaking Mm. of quotes, that thing is full of quotes that are so pertinent to what is going on right now. Um, Just the the seeking, the the need for hope in the darkness. Mm. That's one of the reasons why I wanted to make this show is I thought that I just want people to read. Mm -hmm. I think that there's a big draw in our culture for some reason. We've fallen out of love with reading, especially with so many other alternatives Mm -hmm. that are available to us. Mm -hmm. And that especially when you hit adulthood, once you stop reading to your kids, you stop reading fiction altogether. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, hold the phone. But this is how we develop so many parts of ourselves Mm -hmm. and story. And like you said, this ties into history, too. Can you experience history? It goes back to the quote you read at the beginning. Can you experience history without story? Mm In the absence of story, we lose sense of self. Well, and if you think about the word history, it's his story. That's what history is, is it's God's story. And it has the best characters and the best plot development and the best character arcs and redemption cycle and all of those words. Plot twists. Yes, plot (laughs) twists. It's, I mean, history is the best sort of, I think that's why people are drawn to historical fiction is and 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 just history itself i love reading history books too but historical fiction does add another layer to it that i appreciate i think because it just reminds me unless i can find a book like um uh, allison weir allison weir writes amazing uh biography and history books about uh henry the eighth and anne boleyn and that whole series of of uh part of history um, but she then started writing historical fiction as well. And it's interesting to see, basically, she decided to write historical fiction because she had done all this research into the actual story. And there's gaps, there's holes, there are things we don't know the answer to. And speaking of, you know, recorded history and, and you know, whether they're civilized or not, if they're recorded or not, boy, can you get into bias there? <laughs> history mm-hmm. is full of bias. And what has been saved and what has not been saved. And how it is worded. And again, the whole idea that we're going to come to a a story from a different experience, from a different point of view every single time. And one of the most important things I think as historians that we can remember is that even as we look back and we're putting our 20th century, 21st century uh, lens upon history, we have to remember (laughs) that, you know, they were coming to it from a totally different place. So again, the chosen. One of the things I love that, about it is um, their reminder that Jesus grew up with the stories of the Old Testament. That was mm-hmm. something that had never really hit me. You know, I'd grown up knowing, you know, well, he celebrated Hanukkah. He celebrated Passover. He celebrated all these things because he was Jewish. Um, and I remembered that, but it hadn't really hit me until they started making comments about like uh, Peter's joking with somebody in the, the tavern. And about their long hair and makes a, a reference to Absalom and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, getting his hair caught in the tree. And it's like, that's exactly what they would have been doing. Or, um, or the, oh, the scene where Jesus walks in and he, um, they're picking a book to read from the Torah. And he says, I th- uh, John picks uh, creation. And Jesus says, oh, that's my favorite too. And oh, then- and then you look at the beginning of John's gospel and it's, <laughs> yes. And it's just like, oh my goodness. And the word was God, and the word was with God, and the word, yeah, and the word is there, and it's just oh, it gives you chills. Yes, yes. Oh, and I love that. And um, I actually go to a Latin mass, and mm-hmm. at the end of the Latin mass, 
they read that first part of John's gospel at the end of every single one. And you were talking about how you encounter scripture differently when you hear it mm-hmm. multiple times, and especially, you know, hearing it every week at the very end, you know, and you really think about these things. And what I love is the the translation that I like the best of that is I've heard it them say like, you know, um, and the darkness did not overcome it. You know, it, it, he was the light and the, the darkness did not overcome it. And what was interesting is in one of the older translations that I've read, it says, hold on, let me get my, let me get my Bible real quick. Yeah. You know, we talk about that words matter. And especially as wordsmiths, we learn that the words that we choose matter. Mm-hmm. And two things that I noticed, this is a, this is a Dewey Rames translation, which like would the language is more similar to like a King James or things like that, a more traditional language. The thing that blew me away is the way that they word it here is, and the light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Mm. And I mean, this is the whole reason that Satan said, you know, non servium, I will not serve, is because he could not comprehend God's love and light and goodness. And so not only did the darkness not overcome the light, but the, the darkness can't even get near it. Right. Yeah. And the other one, I mean, I have multiple translations and, you know, I flipped through all of them. But the other one in this one that really struck me is also from John in John 19.3. Jesus's words from the cross are not, it is finished. And here it's, it is consummated. Mm-hmm. Once again, tying us back to relationship. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. Yay. <laughs> yeah. And so I just, I think about that, that this is, this is the marriage of the lamb. I, I love John the Baptist mm-hmm. in The Chosen. Oh, yes. Yeah. And him just, him pointing to Christ, behold the lamb of God and tying it back to Abraham, mm-hmm. you know, that this is the sacrifice that was prefigured, you know, that this is the thing that can actually save us. Mm-hmm. And in the end, Yay. that's our job, right? We we are all John the Baptists pointing to God. That's our, and that's what literature should should be about. Is when a Christian writes it. So when a Christian is writing, and Andrew Peterson talks about this in Adorning the Dark about the importance of being a a Christian and a writer, and how that should look different from you. Know, so you can be either a Christian writer, right? So you're writing. Christian fiction, right? Or I do not write Christian fiction. Um, that is a choice that I made. But I am absolutely a Christian writer. So there will be Christian themes in all of my books. Be- and in the end, it's because that's my worldview. And so it's going to influence mm-hmm. how I write. Um, but also, I love what he says in there about just that it is our job to point toward the light for those who are suffocating in, in darkness to point towards the hope, towards the light um, that overcomes the darkness and do that in, in small ways. And, um, and we, are, we are John the Baptist pointing towards that truth and that hope and that he's here for everybody. So no matter where Absolutely. you are at in your life. That he's written a good ending for you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He has. Yay. Well, why don't you tell us, fabulous Christian author of fiction. There we go. <laughs> what do you have coming up soon? Um, so the first book in the uh, Spoken Clock Tower Mysteries, uh, Butcher Baker Candlestick Taker is available now. And then the sequel will be coming out um, on May 17th, which is the same day as the book takes place. So I will be releasing um, historical articles and things leading up straight out of the Spokesman Review straight up uh, leading up to the events that happen in the book. So it'll be exactly 121 years after the events of the book, right? Um, And it's very tied into local history. A lot of things that happened in May of 1901 here in Spokane. I can smell the lilacs now. Yes. (laughs) Oh, and it's, it just, it's so much fun. The the next two books. um, So I've written the, the next two. So I've got the first three done in the cycle, and I'm hoping to write 12 books in the series. Um, we'll see how that works out. But it's so much fun to tie it into, into history, to go looking in the, 
spokesman review and looking for articles and going, oh, that's what happened. That's what was happening in town. And, and, and like Allison Weir does, you know, looking for those gaps to fill it in. Um, and it's a great place to tell, to tell stories. So, yeah. So I've got a lot of projects in the, in the works right now. So. And where can people follow you on all this work? Uh, so my website, uh, patricia-meredith.com. Uh, if you sign up for my newsletter, you get a free short story. Uh, right now I've got one called uh, Murder for a Jar of Red Rum, which is a palindrome story. It's like the title. Uh, and it has to do, it's inspired by Agatha Christie's real disappearance, which happened, uh, she was gone for 11 days. Some people might know it from the Doctor Who episode that tries to explain it. <laughs> um, there's lots of different theories uh, for what actually happened. And it's one of those, even in her autobiography, she doesn't explain what happened. So it's kind of inspired by that. But anyway, so that's my website. Um, and then I'm on Facebook and Instagram and Goodreads. Um, all is at P Meredith author. And uh, I'm always posting fun things about history and quotes. Like I said, I collect quotes. So I love sharing those with people and, um, and inspiring other authors through that. Well, and I know of another place where people can get your work. And that would be the Spokane Public Library. Yes. Oh, and I love your public library. Yes. Ask your library to go ahead and buy this book. I am telling you that Butcher Baker Candlestick Taker will have very broad appeal. <laughs> and it's not just for Christians. It's no. for everybody. It's a very enjoyable book. And I even got to listen to the audiobook, which is very, very well done. Excellent. Yes. She she did such a good job. Yeah. She's doing the first three. Rebecca Cook was my audiobook narrator. She's another local Spokenite. Um, is she? Yeah. So at the Campbell House, if you've ever been there, she plays Holda, the cook. So if you go there at Christmas time, uh, you can meet uh, Rebecca Cook. Um, but yeah, she's she's doing the narration for the first three books, and she's just oh, she's spot on. So she's so amazing. Oh, um, but yeah, so the book is available in ebook, print, or audiobook wherever books are sold, and through your library. Absolutely, get it through your library. Libraries are amazing. And if your library doesn't have them, tell them to order it. Exactly, because if you request it through your library, then it's available for other people, so other people might stumble upon it. So. And yeah, and like I said, it's not Christian fiction. So so do know that. <laughs> um, there's definitely some themes in there. So No, it was very enjoyable. It was a very and and you also don't need to be from Spokane to appreciate it. No. But if you are from Spokane, I mean you just enjoy it so much because you totally see yourself taking a streetcar up the hill, going past Manitou Park. I mean, you can just see it, which wasn't Manitou Park then, and you'll find out what it was. That's correct. If you read the book. That's right. It's so much fun. I figured it was about time somebody wrote about Spokane. <laughs> I love Spokane. I love it. I really do. But I think it's time for us to learn a little bit more about you in the Rando Round. Oh, good. <laughs> I wasn't sure so we have time. I have. <laughs> yes, of course we have time. There is always time for the Rando Round. <laughs> And we have our hundred over-caffeinated questions. And we have the dice. So tie-dye or pink mermaid sparkles. Oh, pink mermaid sparkles for my daughter. Oh, <laughs> fabulous. All right. So I'm going to roll these puppies and see what we come up with. All right. 37. I've been hitting a lot of 30s lately. What is your favorite word? Ooh. So a word that I discovered uh, when writing Butcher Baker, uh, Renarian, and it means to be frog-like. They look like a frog. And uh, it's a word that I use to describe one of my main characters, uh, Archie Prescott. And, uh, and then I, I try to define it in there too. But it's the word that most people come to me and they're like, I had to look up a word in your book. <laughs> and it's like, yep, Renarian. I love it. And it's one of those words that was common back then, I guess. I guess a lot of people look more like frogs. I don't know. <laughs> awesome. Well, maybe we've, you know, skewed a little less amphibian at this point. Yeah, I don't know I don't what know. what species we uh, are like now. Yeah. I, I probably don't want to know. No. <laughs> Let's see what else we come up with here. 97. What is your best MacGyver moment? I mean, in literature, I can think of something like that I'm writing. Um, I'll come up with some. So in the third book, yeah, so the one I, I'm working on right now, 
think I can talk about this. Yeah. So Archie Prescott is one of my main characters. He's a clockmaker and he's an inventor and uh, he uh, invents things uh, having to do with sound theory um, often. And uh, so he has this idea for how to run a car using a sound engine. Archie uh, has to come up with a way for one of my other characters, Bernard Carew. He's a detective. His wife is in a wheelchair and she needs to be able to get out of the house and go do something to help uh, Bernard. At that time, people in wheelchairs didn't leave their house. They didn't go anywhere um, unless you could really roll, you know, a couple blocks away. Um, but she's a very active woman. She loves to get out there. She's very science minded. I love her. Actually, she's an amazing character. And I'm so excited to introduce her to the world. She has so much to say about being a Christian and also loving science and being an intellectual, an intellectual Christian, which sounds like an oxymoron to some people, but I, I love not it. to me. I love it. <laughs> um, so I'm very excited to introduce her. Um, and, uh, Anyway, so uh, Archie has to find a way to get her wheelchair into a car. And so I came up with a way for him to make it so that she can drive the car herself and be in the car in her wheelchair. And that was really fun figuring that out because it took a lot of research into cars at the time and figuring out how they worked. Um, And I'm not mechanically minded at all, but I love research. So we were able to figure out a way to, to make that happen. So. I guess that would be the closest thing. <laughs> that works for me. It sounds fascinating. And I, I I am really excited to read that because this is actually something that my husband and I discuss a lot because we're both devout Christians mm-hmm. and we're both scientists. I don't work in a science field outside of my home and like permaculture in my garden, things like that mm-hmm. anymore. But I was a medical technologist in a past life and my husband is a chemist. Okay. And so, you know, those intersections of faith and reason. Exactly. And I remember a book because you were talking about sci-fi. Mm-hmm. Yes. And uh, intersecting with like historical fiction and things like that. Have you ever read A Canticle for Leibowitz? No. I think you mentioned it in another podcast though, and I wrote it down. <laughs> so I'm going to read it. Oh. Yes. <laughs> it's like, I don't want to give anything away, but it you've got to read it yeah. because it's a science fiction masterpiece. Awesome. It really is. The, the main characters are a religious order. Okay. And, but the way that it's handled, but I don't want to give anything away because it's just, everyone should read this. I don't care if you're secular or Christian or whatever. The book is just mind blowing. Awesome. But awesome. in it. When was it written? Oh. The 1950s. Dogs are good. But no, okay. you need, you need to read Canticle for Leibowitz. I'll tell you just a little bit because I think it'll make it even more fascinating for you. No, I can't. I can't. I can't because nope. It's okay. It's on my TBR. I will read it. Oh my (laughs) gosh. And then we'll we'll discuss. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Because it's just, it is mind blowing. And the thing my husband mentioned to me, because my husband is a total nerd, loves science fiction, things like that. Like nerd, we're we're both nerds. We're like Tolkien nerds, um, role-playing game nerds, just nerds, Christian nerds. And he said, I never thought that someone could write such a good science fiction story where there's no incongruity between religious faith and the science fiction. Wow. Yeah, because that's very rare. It feels like most science fiction uh, comes from an atheist point of view. And it usually, uh, in the future, there's no faith. Or in the future, they're, you know, they've disproved the church and all of this. And I hate that. Because it's like, no, <laughs> sorry, guys. If, if we learn anything from history, it's that um, God has, has overly proven himself. So you were saying that you couldn't, that, you know, the idea of having science fiction and Christianity together, that this, that this is this anomaly. And it's like, well, why on earth should it be anomaly? We have a God of reason. Mm-hmm. He is the author of science. Mm-hmm. So why can't we have science fiction that incorporates the idea of a first cause. Why is that? Right. Why is that not allowed? Anyway, let's roll the dice. (laughs) We have 46. When is the best time to start writing? Now. (laughs) 
right now, you have a story to tell that is unique. I mean, we've been talking about how uh, everyone comes to literature from a different experience and you're going to read it differently every time. But when you're writing a book, it's the same way. Write it right now because the worst that can happen is you go back and you have to edit it and revise it. In fact, you have to. That's one of the biggest things that I learned about writing, realizing that even the professional authors do not write and it's perfect. They write a first draft and then they revise it and then they revise it and then they revise it and then they have somebody else read it and then they revise it. And that's where the really good literature comes from. It it has been read and edited and revised and fixed a million times. And as a young author, I did not understand that. I thought, well, I will never be Brandon Sanderson because he can sit down and write this epic thing in one sitting. And it was actually listening to him. He has a podcast called Writing Excuses. And I went back and listened from the very beginning. Um, It's come a long way now. It's been on for like 15 years now. Um, But the earlier episodes in particular are amazing because it's uh, because he He'll, he admitted to the world that his first drafts are not perfect and that they required revision. And I thought, what? Oh my goodness, mind blown. That's amazing. Um, because it means that I can write something crappy <laughs> and turn it into something amazing, which means anybody can do that. You know, it's, it's a craft. It takes time. It takes effort. It takes putting yourself out there. It's very vulnerable. Uh, a very vulnerable moment of, of letting other people read your work, but um, you kind of grow a callus over it after a while. Um, that's why I use beta readers. Um, so beta readers are people who read your book before it's published. And I have a lot of them uh, and they come from different walks of life, different worldviews, different uh, experiences, um, especially because I'm writing historical fiction. I wanted it to be very accurate. And so I had, you know, a clockmaker that I talked to to help make that realistic. I had a blacksmith who actually went to Japan and studied the Japanese art of blacksmithing, uh, which is why I have a Japanese blacksmith in my book, you know, and then somebody who knows Spokane history and all of that. So in the end, you know, learning and talking to people, you have a story to tell and it's worth sharing. Somebody needs to hear your story. You know, whether, whether it comes out terrible and you end up just tweeting it, that's still a story. Somebody needs to hear it. Thank you for that. And just for people to know, how long did it take for you to go from beginning Butcher Baker Candlestick Maker until you published? So, um, yeah, if I'm if I'm truth, if I'm very honest with myself, the very first draft of it, which is so far from what I ended up with, but the very first draft I wrote eight years ago when I was pregnant with my firstborn, and then I took a five year break, and then discovered Jennifer Fulweiler, who told me that I could write, (laughs) that it's okay to be a mom and write. And so I jumped back in there and uh, my husband sent me to the Campbell house. Uh, So that's been, I said, eight years. So no, that's not right. About four years later, because it's been about four years in the current rendition, working on Butcher Baker Candlestick Taker. That being said, the sequel I wrote in a year and the third book I've written in six months. So it's gotten shorter because the major research of figuring out what was Spokane like in 1901 was in the first book. But now I've got my characters, I've got my, my plan for the rest of the series, and I know how to do the research much better now. So it's gotten easier. So I expect the, the future books to, to roll out pretty um, much, much easier. Hopefully you will not be, uh, no, I promise you that you will not be waiting 10 years between books. <laughs> So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I'm still waiting to get my first book off the ground. We'll see how it goes. It's only been, this is year three so far. So I figure I've still got a good five years to go. <laughs> I'm okay. It, it's worth it. Listening to other authors talk about their experience and things like that has just been so encouraging to me. Good. And I've gotten to read so many amazing books that it just makes me very happy. And meeting amazing people. I just love the connections I make with people. But sadly, I think our time is coming to a close, and I have to ask you the last question. And that is, what gives you hope right now? Reading the Bible. I mean, all of our discussions about uh, going back and reading it through. But um, let me clarify that. 
So not just reading it on my own, but reading it with my kids specifically. When I read the Bible with my kids, because of their innocence and the way they approach the stories and the questions they ask, it brings this whole other level and reminds me of how much hope I do have. That I I think sometimes I even take it for granted because, like I said, through the last two years, I can't imagine not being a Christian and not having that hope to pull me through. Um, and so talking with my kids and, and, and uh, reminding myself with the very words I'm saying to them, right, and the very stories I'm reading again, God's got this. And, uh, and like you said, no matter how dark it is, no matter how much we cannot comprehend the dark, um, Jesus can. God can. He's, you know, and the Holy Spirit is with us. And thank God for that. <laughs> that gives me hope. Well, Patricia, thank you so much for joining us. This has been so much fun, so much fun. And I'm just so grateful for your time. And I look forward to us chatting again in the future. Excellent. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. This is wonderful. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation, click on the follow button for more tales every other Tuesday. And in the meantime, read stories that matter because you are living one.